Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to talk about Laura Mulvey's essay, Visual Pleasure in Narrative Cinema, in which she develops the idea of the male gaze and scopophilia, pretty important terms in the history of film studies and psychoanalysis. But before jumping into that, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. If you're new here, welcome. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical concepts and ideas in a way to make them accessible to you. So if you're new, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends, who knows, they might get a kick out of it. If you aren't new here, do all those things. I just said it anyways, if you haven't already. If you wanna help me out, you can do that monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. If you found this on YouTube, you'll be able to find it in podcast form where there shouldn't be any ads. Or if you found this in podcast form, you'll be able to find me on YouTube where sometimes I release videos. So if you're into that, you know, go find me on there. So yeah, don't waste any more of your time with that stuff. Let's jump into this short essay. So the short form of this already short essay is to say that cinema, specifically narrative cinema, reflects the real world and it reflects the social relations found in that world. And this happens not only in terms of the content seen on the screen. So there needs to be some relationship there. That is, we need to be watching something that we can recognize. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to have any kind of connection to it. But also, the cinema fosters a kind of innate desire for looking, for viewing, what Mulvey calls, borrowing from Freud in the psychoanalytic tradition, scopophilia, the desire to look, to see. So now we have two forms of the cinema here. That is, we have what is presented on the screen, but also what that screen necessitates, and that is viewers who are watching. Now, Mulvey says that both of these things, both of these sites, the screen and the viewer, are extensions of the social order. And for her, as she very clearly demonstrates, and she's very correct about, that order is an undoubtedly patriarchal one. So, what happens on the screen, and the relationships within the screen, and the acts of viewing, are going to be extensions of that patriarchal order. So she deploys psychoanalysis to try to understand this because for her, these patriarchal inclinations of the cinema and of viewing fall under the radar because they've become so naturalized. They are, by and large, they fall into our societal unconscious. So we need psychoanalysis to reveal this aspect of the cinema, to reveal this aspect of viewing, which could then serve as a means to look at the broader social sphere at large. Now this patriarchal order plays itself out in very specific dynamics between men and women. And as psychoanalysis tells us, that is Freudian psychoanalysis and Lacanian psychoanalysis, in the dynamic between men and women is found a fear of castration. Now what is that? And it's a big thing to unpack here in just a few minutes and I'll try to be as brief yet as precise as I can. For Freud, men experience a perpetual fear of the thought of being castrated, which they see in women by not having a penis. So they witness this and say, oh, something has happened to women that we must make sure does not happen to us. Now this translates into men exerting a great deal of dominance, not only over the world, but over women as well. We're going to develop this a little bit as we go on. This happens in two primary ways, but for now, let's just put that on the back burner. To say that in this patriarchal psychoanalytic configuration, men feel the urge to protect their, their phallus, 
by exerting control, exerting domination over the world to mitigate that threat, to try to assuage the possibility of that happening. But interestingly, the only way it is possible to develop an identity in terms of having a penis, there must be a correlative other in the terms of in terms of a lack, that is women lacking a penis, in order against which to measure oneself's lack of lack, that is the state of having a penis, not being castrated. So for that reason, men are dependent upon women as castrated to justify and to maintain their own position in the world, that is a largely privileged one that is able to exert certain controls within what Mulvey takes from psychoanalytic theory in the symbolic order which pertains to the law, to institutions, to ideology that follows from the law of the father and the name of the father that automatically assumes a phallocentric order, a privileging of the phallus which is then extended throughout all of society. So through women being castrated, through this I'm using the term symbolic here colloquially, not in the way I just said it, but in this symbolic castration of women, transforms women into a site of desire, into a site of possibility. Because in the experience of lack, there can then be inputted onto women limitless possibility, limitless potential, a void that men seek to fill. Now she's gonna elaborate this on more in a minute, but as I kind of intimated, this happens in two possible ways either. The woman is seen as a site of mystery that has to be unearthed and kind of understood. So I like to think about this in terms of the classic trope of the femme fatale, this kind of mysterious woman who comes in and out of the narrative almost haphazardly, that it is the man's obligation to understand and to tame and control, which often happens in these stories where the femme fatale and the male protagonist end up in a relationship of some sort. But another way that this plays itself out is by turning the woman into an object of desire by through the act of looking and domination that turns the woman not into an active participant in the production of meaning and the production of but rather as a passive recipient of meaning that is imparted upon them by the patriarchal order so it turns women into an object of desire for men's pleasure who have who occupy an active role in this patriarchal framework. Now this is this is an example of scopophilia, which is a desire to look, an act that turns the object being looked at into an object of desire. Now not only is the object itself a kind of object of desire, but the act of looking becomes desirable as well, where looking takes on a kind of fetishistic form in itself, where it's something quite exciting, not only by turning something into an object, by being able to do that through looking presents an avenue for the command of that object in ways that might otherwise not be permitted or might not be available. And here we might think of some examples like the peeping Tom who has a desire to look at somebody without their consent and how in that looking, although they aren't necessarily hurting the person they're looking at if it's happening in secret, it is still nevertheless an act of domination of that person's body, of that person's autonomy and privacy, which in itself operates as a kind of mode of excitement for the peeping Tom or the voyeur. 
And the cinema fosters this kind of setting. So if we think of the cinema, or just the movie theater, you go to the movie theater and sit in these atomized chairs that have these very, often very rigid arm, very rigid armrests, kind of blocking you off from everyone around you. And your gaze is fixed forwards on the screen and you don't see anyone around you, especially in the way that the seats are, are leveled so that you just are looking at a screen. Now you occupy a kind of private zone there and you are being streamlined into the private lives of people on the screen. You are assume, you assume this position of the voyeur who is looking at the screen, who is able to enact this fantasy of looking at what is not supposed to be looked at or what is supposed to be private. But as I said earlier, the cinema has to reflect our world to some extent. It has to be something that viewers recognize or else there wouldn't we wouldn't be able to foster a kind of connection with, with, with what happens on screen. So the cinema is instrumental not only in producing these objects of desire and for satisfying a desire to look, but also in the formation of the ego, as if we take the ego in the most basic sense to be our sense of self, who we are as a human. And this comes about through gradual phases within psychoanalytic theory, where we have examples like the mirror stage, where to put it really quite simply, a child is looking at a mirror and they have their mother present potentially or some kind of other figure who says, this is, you know, this is you on your own. And this is the first moment the child sees themselves as separate from their mother. Now what we see on the screen opens up more of that possibility, but on the screen, there is represented not only what we desire, but more of what we desire what Freud calls the ego ideal. That is, we see on the screen not only what we want to dominate and control and violate in terms of viewing, but also who we want to be. Now, th these ideal figures serve as templates for people within any kind of social setting to live up to and try to, to try to become. So here we are presented with a contradiction of the screen in the cinema, where on the one hand, it is meant to present objects of desire that we don't associate with, but that we actively try to dominate and control. But on the other hand, the cinema presents images that are meant to serve as ego ideal subjects. As I've been presenting this, I've been deliberately coy in who this we is, who this we are. And Laura Mulvey is quite clear that when we were talking about the possibility of having a kind of resonating relationship with the images on the screen, with these ego ideals, we're referring primarily to the relationship between male viewers and the screen. Now she says in a footnote that, of course, there are films with women as protagonists, and she says she doesn't have time here to really uh, undergo that or to really discuss that. But to just put it quite simply, why that's not a counter thesis to what she's saying. Women protagonists often have to follow a certain script. And one of those scripts is that they often have to be thin white women. So women on the screen might certainly act as an ego ideal for women viewers, and that can be empowering. But at the same time, there are certain unwritten rules that come to be formed through hegemonic institutions that impose upon these possibilities certain limitations, that is being thin, being normatively attractive, being white, that restrict the real potential that is afforded to people on the screen. 
and to viewers who might relate to what happens on the screen. But I wanna caveat this by also saying that the issue is a lot more complicated than I think Mulvey dedicates time to. So it's just a short essay. We can't expect that she was gonna go through all of these different routes. But largely what happens in this interaction and what happens within the screen among the characters is that women frequently occupy passive positions whereas the men are active. Men assume the most commanding positions within the narratives and by extension, male viewers have more subjects with which they can relate to then exert their own desire for control upon other people within the world, just mirroring what they see on the screen, which as I said earlier, the screen has already been mirroring the society at large. So there's a kind of reciprocal relationship here. Now remember how I said there were two ways in which women can be treated, either as an object of desire or as a kind of mystery that has to be solved in terms of like the femme fatale. Well, Mauvais says that this issue comes up most prominently when we begin to interrogate any desire that can be attached to castration because castration is obviously not a good or pleasurable thing. So how then can desire be associated with it? Well, it comes down to always commanding that thing that is castrated so that the castration can't be repeated against men, but also to reduce any possible mystery of the women characters that might exist outside of the normative domain of the patriarchal structure to bring them always back to that structure so that deviation is limited. It only happens in small doses, but always resolves back into the system at large. So she goes through a few examples here of film to explain this, and I don't wanna go present them all because that would take, I would have to explain the plots. So I just wanna present one, and that is Hitchcock's Rear Window. And if you don't know the film, it was parodied by The Simpsons, where Bart breaks his leg and he can only amuse himself by looking out his window with a telescope, and he eventually sees what appears to be a murder happening next door. Now in the film, similar thing occurs. The protagonist, I believe he breaks his leg, um, is confined to his bed into a wheelchair and has to just amuse himself by looking out the window where he unfolds a, a kind of murder occurring across the street. So in that moment, it might appear, or in that film, it might appear as though the man assumes a passive role. He's not physically mobile. But even in that immobility, he assumes this role of the commanding figure within the film. And he's opened up to so much by virtue of that. He is the hero at the end of the day. And he attains all his power through this act of looking, through this fetishistic scopophilia by looking next door. And there's this kind of added subplot where he's having a, he kind of struggling with his, with his wife. But as soon as she goes next door or across the street to where these events are unfolding and he looks at her through that gaze, then their relationship sort of gets corrected again. How the act of viewing can reinscribe the proper, the, so the, the psychoanalytic proper dynamics of that society, of that relationship, so that the man can reimpose his control over the woman, woman who can then retain the subordinate position to the man, and then they can live happily ever after. And of course, Mulvey laments all of this. And it's an issue that we must all confront, especially when we begin, and she wrote this in the mid 70s, when we begin to think about the possibilities of cinema, what it could do to transgress these prejudices, to transgress these kind of unconscious impulses towards these patriarchal structures. 
Now, adopting psychoanalysis to oppose the patriarchy is kind of ironic because psychoanalysis is in bed with the patriarchy. So we have to ask how effective is appealing to psychoanalysis at actually drawing attention to these things? And I don't have an answer to that. Just leave your answer in the comments. But she concludes by saying that with this move to a possible new cinema, one that is going to oppose these classic structures, it might come with a sentimentalist regret. Where on the one hand, there is a desire, yes, to move beyond what had happened, to regret that history there, but also to recognize that there was a lot of magic in that period of classic Hollywood narrative cinema, classic Hollywood narrative cinema as well, and how it conditioned much of what society is and very poignantly reflected that society. So that's how she leaves it here and that pretty much covers it. If there's anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it or anything I mischaracterized, I'd love to hear about it. You know how to do it. Uh, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, and yeah, I'll catch you next time. Take care.